Hi, everyone, and welcome to this What You Talking About Willis podcast. My name is Henry Willis, and I'm the Head of Humanities and Politics here at Halebury College in Melbourne, Victoria. Thank you for joining us as we discuss all things international relations, making connections between current world events and the VCE Global Politics curriculum. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Good morning, everyone. It's Thursday, the 11th of March, and welcome to another episode of What You're Talking About, Willis, where we discuss all things politics and international relations. Last week, we spoke in depth about the International Monetary Fund and the aims, roles and powers of this organisation. And today, we're going to talk about another intergovernmental organisation, which is the International Criminal Court. Uh, So again, we continue with the same theme of looking at what the organisation aims to do um, and its broad roles in international relations. We assess and evaluate their power and their influence in international relations to achieve these aims and whether they are powerful enough to achieve these aims. And finally, we'll touch on the ICC's ability to erode or impede state sovereignty. Um, So again, we might start with a little bit of background on the International Criminal Court. probably the most important thing to understand about the ICC is that it is a permanent treaty-based court. Um, So what that means is that there's an international law, this is known as the Rome Statute, um, which is essentially a piece of paper with a whole bunch of provisions on it, which if ratified, um, becomes legally binding in a state. And so the International Criminal Court, its mandate and jurisdiction is outlined in this particular document. The court has a permanent uh, home in The Hague in the Netherlands, so it does have a physical structure, but primarily the main power and influence of these organisations comes from its ability to embed itself within the legal systems of its member states. And so in order to understand that power and influence, you need to sort of be able to differentiate um, a couple of key things. Firstly, states may not sign or ratify this document, the Rome Statute of the Court, which does raise questions about the court's power because if a state hasn't become a signatory or a member of the court, we could argue then that the court perhaps lacks influence or an ability to limit the power of those states. Although it must be said that there are an emerging body of examples where the ICC is attempting to extend its power and influence into states who have not signed or ratified the Rome Statute. And the most recent example was the ICC uh, declaring uh, an investigation into potential war crimes in Palestinian territories um, to review both Israeli soldier conduct as well as uh, the conduct of Palestinian rebels. Um, And Israel is not a a signatory or a member of the Rome Statute, which is an interesting precedent. Um, Needless to say, Benjamin Netanyahu um, wasn't particularly pleased with this uh, investigation being announced. Um, He labelled it as the height of anti-Semitism. But that's just an interesting example of how it doesn't necessarily uh, have to be a case where you're a member of the court to be sort of influenced by its jurisdiction. But the real power comes from states recognising the court. And so if we sign the Rome Statute of the Court, that doesn't actually carry any legal weight with it. All it does is show some sort of symbolic approval for the court's existence. And so there are states that have signed the Rome Statute who haven't ratified it, which is common with international law when you want to show that you're sort of somewhat committed to its ideas, but at the same time, um, there's no sort of legal precedent for the court to actually sort of intervene in your own legal system. Ratifying the, the document is the key 
part of the ICC's power because what that means is that you take the standards, the articles of the court, the Rome Statute, and you essentially embed that in your own legal system. So you create your own laws that are sort of consistent and uphold the values of the court. And so the ICC has 123 member states, and that means it has fairly strong legal influence within those 123 member states. And this gives the court its power because by enshrining its standards within those member states, those member states then enforce those ideas through their own legal systems. Um, now that's obviously hotly contested because there's many, many examples of ICC member states not enforcing those standards, but that's how technically it is supposed to work. And so the articles of the Rome Statute outline a number of key things. Um, Article 1 establishes the court um, and, and outlines its sort of uh, its power and its ability to exercise jurisdiction um, over certain types of persons. Um, Article 5 highlights the jurisdiction of the court and the types of crimes which it's primarily concerned with. So in this case, the major crimes that the ICC looks to investigate are the crimes of genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and the crime of aggression, um, which is a big part of the ICC's fundamental aim. Uh, and another interesting one is Article 13, which outlines the jurisdiction of the court and in what ways can the court um, seek to begin an investigation. And there are three primary mechanisms for this. Um, the first one is that if the uh, prosecutor uh, of a state party, um, for example, a member of the court uh, looks to open an investigation and there's crimes that have been committed, um, it can occur that way. Um, it could be a case where the um, UN Security Council, for example, um, could recommend that a prosecution um, or an investigation take place. And then the Chief Prosecutor of the court itself also has the right um, and the power to um, investigate and potentially launch proceedings against a particular individual. Um, so they're some of the key articles. And I think the last point that I made there is key that the ICC targets individuals. Um, unlike other mechanisms like the International Court of Justice, which is um, inherently tied to the UN, which aims to sort of serve as a broader dispute settlement mechanism between one state and another, the ICC is very much focused on individual offenders. And look, that's often been warlords, um, people who have committed violent crimes, but it can also be heads of state as well. Um, and that's something worth considering because even though it might be an individual, um, for example, um, former Sudanese president Omar al-Bashir has a number of warrants for his arrest. Um, as a head of state, he also represents the entire country. And so, um, the, you know, when, when we say it's addressing an individual, it is also addressing state conduct as well, particularly in cases where heads of state are responsible for these crimes. So in terms of the aims of the court, we already mentioned the primary aim, that the primary aim is to prosecute the worst offenders of crimes against humanity, war crimes, genocide, and crimes of aggression. And it's very important that you list all four of those key crimes when you're outlining this aim. Um, in terms of the evidence that you can use to demonstrate the achievement of this aim, um, there's been a number of successful prosecutions, um, the latest of which was uh, this year, when on the 4th of February, um, former Ugandan um, war criminal, uh, Dominic Ongwen, 
was found guilty of a total of 61 crimes against humanity and war crimes committed in northern Uganda between 2002 and 2005. Um, so again, that's another example of a successful prosecution. Um, we've had Malayan jihadists uh, prosecuted for cultural desecration in 2016. Um, Thomas Lebunga is the classic uh, case of a Congolese warlord um, who was found guilty of conscripting child soldiers in 2012, and he was sentenced to 14 years in prison. Um, so you have many examples to demonstrate the um, influence of the court, their ability to, to prosecute individuals who fail to uphold sort of fundamental standards in international society. If we start to look at the limitations of this, however, you'll already start to notice that there's particular trends going on. Firstly, the ICC has had no real success prosecuting offenders outside of the African continent. Uh, this has led to allegations of bias against African states and also infers that because African states might be less powerful than others, um, they are more susceptible to the jurisdiction and the mandate of the court. Um, so there's been a, a real criticism around that particular issue. Um, then you look at the types of people being prosecuted. So they're all warlords, um, which, you know, is good, but at the same time, there's no real sovereignty attached to these individuals. And most of the time, these are individuals that are detained in court by their member states or their home states, and then handed over to the ICC for prosecution. So um, prosecuting these people is actually in the state's national interest, and therefore we've had a lot of success there. What we haven't seen um, any real success is uh, towards is the idea of actually holding heads of state accountable. Um, there's been a, a few attempts to do this. We already mentioned Sudanese, former Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir, um, the, the former Kenyan president, Uruhu um, Kenyatta, was, was um, an investigation was sort of launched against him as well. Um, there's been attempts to probe you know, for example, the Israeli example, the Syrian example, but um, Myanmar is being brought into the spotlight quite a lot now as well. But there's no real, um, real sort of case of actually sort of eroding state sovereignty to actually prosecute a head of state. And there's a number of reasons for that. It's very difficult for someone to detain a head of state. Um, the Bashir example is an interesting one. Um, South Africa was heavily criticized by the ICC in 2015 because they're a signatory state, um, they're a member of the Rome Statute. And Bashir uh, visited the country uh, on an African Union uh, summit. And the South African courts were saying, based on our laws, you must detain this man, you must hand him over to the court to face his uh, crimes. And they didn't do that. Um, so they were heavily reprimanded by the ICC and also by their own judicial system. Um, but the idea of arresting a, a, a current head of state, which he was at the time, um, is a really potentially dangerous thing for someone to have to do. And it's clear that Bashir pretty much traveled throughout Africa um, over almost a decade without ever really being um, you know, subject to detention by a number of ICC member states. I think he crossed borders 131 times um, since his warrants were issued in 2009 and 2010. And he visited 14 member states of the ICC and he was never detained once, uh, which really does highlight how the court's jurisdiction um, you know, is not only limited when states don't ratify the Rome Statute, but even when states do, um, there's a whole range of sort of national interest concerns, which may mean that a state would be reluctant to uphold its obligations to the court. And so they're, they're some of the major limitations and criticisms of the ICC's power um, and their ability to achieve these particular aims. 
The Australian example um, from earlier this year was an interesting one. Um, for those that haven't seen that example, Australian Special Forces soldiers, there was an investigation which found um, fairly systemic abuses um, conducted in places like Afghanistan primarily, but also Iraq um, by our Special Forces soldiers. And interestingly, um, our Australian government felt the need to sort of respond to that uh, in order to protect their sovereignty. Um, there were concerns that our troops would be sort of sent off to say, for example, the ICC, but the Australian government has taken sort of fairly swift action to try and sort of launch its own legal proceedings, which sort of highlights how, you know, and Scott Morrison was very clear in saying this, that the ICC is designed to complement um, a, a national um, criminal justice system. Um, it's not there to usurp sovereignty. Um, it's there to support um, and provide assistance and, you know, imply pressure that if you don't do the right thing and prosecute offences that the ICC may get involved. But in that case, it was a, a complementary mechanism and didn't really impede too much upon our sovereignty. Um, and so that's a, that's an interesting example to sort of to look at because, you know, certainly the Australian government felt pressure, I would imagine, to take action in order to avoid the ICC intervening in this particular example. And look, we, we've seen people like former President Trump being very clear in his condemnation of the ICC, saying that it usurps their sovereignty and they're quite fearful of American soldiers who've been accused of similar kinds of war crimes um, being taken away from their jurisdiction and being tried in a foreign court. Um, the Russians have expressed similar concerns. Um, China as well are, are very reluctant to hand over any kind of sovereignty or recognition to the court. So as we know, historically, when the big players in international relations don't really um, advocate for and support these kind of institutions, they tend to end up lacking teeth. Um, and so their ability to influence others and erode state sovereignty is often quite limited. The other key aim of the ICC, as I mentioned before, is to assist national judiciaries so, um, and their various agencies. So the ICC doesn't just aim to prosecute itself, um, it also aims to support others to do so because the ICC, I think its preference would always be that a state have a strong legal system and that it be able to serve justice um, within their own sovereignty. And so we've seen examples where the ICC has supported other states to do this. Um, a good example is the Special Court for Sierra Leone, which was set up by the government of Sierra Leone and the United Nations in coordination with the ICC. Um, the ICC didn't run the trial, but they provided a whole range of legal expertise, courtroom services, um, facilities, detention services, um, and all sorts of um, financial assistance to make sure that this could happen in an appropriate way. And this is a nice approach to try and empower a state to take responsibility for its own uh, affairs um, by supporting them without fully eroding their independent ability to actually run their own legal systems. And that particular case uh, resulted in a fairly strong conviction. Um, former Liberian President Charles Taylor was sentenced to 50 years in prison as a result of that particular um, multilateral kind of uh, example of support and cooperation. And so there's been some, some positives in terms of that idea of assisting national judiciaries rather than just um, overruling them and undermining them. So there are your two primary aims. The power is essentially legal power for the ICC. Um, it's primarily drawn from the road statute and you need to be able to assess and evaluate the strengths of that power and the deficiencies of that power as well. In terms of the roles, um, I think broadly speaking, the ICC is a court of last resort. 
Um, and really its primary function is to prosecute the worst offenders when states are either unable or unwilling to do so themselves. So they're not, they don't exist to um, prosecute every single case. Um, they don't exist to um, usurp sovereignty necessarily. They wanna support states and empower states, but they will intervene uh, if, if necessary. Um, and just one last final interesting point. Um, this year marked an interesting first step for the ICC where they actually awarded um, reparations uh, for the first time in the court's history. Um, so there's a, a 29 conviction of a um, former Congolese warlord um, and the court has since turned around and said, well, you know, the victims of these crimes um, are entitled to some sort of compensation. And I think there was something like $30 million um, pledged by, well, the ICC demanded that the offender pay these um, reparations. but in his inability to do so, um, the ICC has actually drawn in its own funds um, to, to, to provide reparations for these victims, which is really interesting. Um, it's an interesting example of how not only the court seeks justice in a, in a legal sort of capacity, in a crime and punishment sort of way, but also in terms of its ability to sort of help victims overcome, um, you know, the, 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 the mass trauma and the atrocities committed. Um, it, it does set a strong sort of precedent for the kind of institution that the ICC wants to be. So hopefully you found this overview of the International Criminal Court um, interesting and useful. Um, ultimately, I'd say the ICC is a fairly weak institution. Um, um, it's a very necessary, important institution in international relations, but unfortunately, because it has not been widely accepted and ratified by all states in the world, um, it tends to lack the power to really overtly influence outcomes and, and erode state sovereignty. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, tune in for the next episode where we'll start to talk a little bit more about non-state actors in international relations. Have a great day.